Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Anne Stanley. Hey, man. Hey, yeah, and thanks for having me on. Uh, it's about time. What's taking you so long? <laughs> I was waiting for you to release uh, uh, Interrupt before I get you on here to talk about it. <laughs> um, so, so I guess uh, maybe we can start with um, just maybe a quick introduction of uh, what you've been doing, how you got into the serverless space. I mean, you were one of the earliest people I know that you know, got really deep into serverless. I remember you coming into the Just Eat office and did a talk, I think it was 2015, uh, and talk yeah. about how you guys were doing um, you know, everything with a serverless, that a cloud guru, and you were doing like an experiment and build something in like a day. Um, so maybe, yeah, talk about your history and how you got into serverless. Yeah, so the service thing um, was almost accidental. Uh, so mid-2015, myself, Ryan Kuhnenberg, and his brother, Sam Kuhnenberg, started Akai Guru. And at the time, I was the only person full-time on the business. Um, Ryan and Sam, because um, they had families and mortgages, which I didn't have at the time, uh, they couldn't really afford to to take the risk at that point in time uh, to go full-time on the business until it was a little bit more stable. So um, so basically, we, we didn't have a lot of time to do things like set up servers and set up infrastructure and run all of that. Uh, so Sam, we built, built the majority of the platform. Uh, you know, decided, oh, let's let's try this Lambda thing. And this was just after API Gateway became available. Um, so Lambda had been announced in 2014. API Gateway got announced, I think, June, July 2015. So um, July, August, Sam built the first version of um, uh, of our school, of the A-Cloud Guru School, and went the Lambda route purely because of – it. Did, it looked like it would have very little operations burden. You know, the idea of not having to run a server was very appealing. Um, I wrote a blog post at the time um, about it, you know, saying how API Gateway would be a, a transformat- transformative um, release purely because now, now you can use Lambda, not have to use any kind of workaround to access Lambda functions publicly, um, and you can access them in a secure, efficient way. And it would allow us to work in a serverless way. It was the first time I ever used the word serverless. And use it with the dash, you know, because back in the day, serverless was server dashless. Um, but, yeah, so we, we we basically adopted it purely because we didn't have time. Um, it was more out of necessity than trying to be cutting edge. And then um, later on, you know, um, when we started blogging about it, we realized that not many people were blogging about it. And also the point where we'd had a bug. And you go to Stack Overflow, and you ask, and you do a search for Lambda or Serverless or whatever, or not even Serverless wasn't a thing, Lambda, and there'd be almost nothing. And then you put you put um, your problem into Stack Overflow, and you'd have Tim Wagner or AJ respond to your to your issue. You know, the the GM and product managers for uh, Lambda at the time. So that's kind of how we got into it, and we started to speak about it because uh, there's two things. One is We'd had a business called A Cloud Guru, so we need to prove to the world that we were cloud gurus. Um, so we wanted to show like what we had done, and the other bit was that um, you know we realized no one else was talking about it um, at the time. Um, you know, early like the first first serverless talk uh, Sam gave in November 2015, and then I gave another serverless talk at the end of November 2015 about how we built our, our platform. So Sam gave one in Ireland. In Dublin at the AWS user group there, and then I gave one at the London user group at the end of November. I think um, 
and then I went, I think gave it a few weeks later again at Just Eat after, so Pete Mounts uh, grabbed me after that meetup and said, hey, do you want to give this, this talk again? Yeah, so that's kind of how we got into it. Um, yeah, it was, uh, and it's been a bit of a ride since then. Um, yeah, it's, I've done all kinds of things. I left Cloud Guru in um, uh, July 2016, um, took a bit of time off, and then I started to do a bit of uh, service consulting, and I've ended up using every major service platform out there. Um, I still use uh, Lambda today actively, um, and, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. Uh, it's, it's been a journey. Yeah, let's uh, come on to the different platforms in a minute. Uh, but uh, let's talk about yeah. what you've been doing since uh, you left uh, Cloud Guru. Uh, no, are you building anything nowadays? Uh, uh, now we've been working together on the, the sensor side of things. Um, yeah. I guess that's yeah, all so serverless as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it's all serverless. So so what happened since I left Cloud Guru, I took a few months off. Um, running a startup is quite stressful, um, You know, particularly when we started with three people. Um, uh, so I took some time off, uh, took a break for a couple of months. Um, 2017, I, I still carried on running the London News Group, uh, which I'd started uh, mid-2016. Um, 2017, there was supposed to be a serverless conference in Amsterdam that got cancelled. So myself, Paul Johnson, and James Thomas decided, let's, let's do a small conference in London. And it took us about six weeks, and we organized um, the first JeffConf, which later became Serverless Days. Um, so part of what I've been doing since then has been helping run Serverless Days globally and the Serverless Days London. And then I've done a few consulting gigs in between all of that. And then this year started kind of Senzo and Homeschool. Um, Senzo was intended to be classroom-based learning um, and an events business. So the idea being, uh, you know, working with people like yourself and instructors who have um, have a reputation in the industry uh, to to help them run physical in-person classroom-based training. Uh, the idea being we looked after everything, we book a venue, we handled all the finances, all the administration around it, and the instructor just turns up and teaches, and the idea being scaling that out to the world, and then also running small niche tech conferences with that, and I started that with Hannah Sevick. Um, and that, that started to go well, and then, then the world shut down. <laughs> Doing anything in person um, has been less than ideal. So we, we did the very rapid pivot to homeschool, which is an attempt to recreate that online um, without having someone stuck in front of Zoom for eight hours a day um, with these workshop-based um, platforms. And that's all serverless. So, so yeah, that, that's been, it's been good to get hands dirty again with uh, serverless workloads. Yeah, for any listener who is interested in taking some of the or checking out some of the courses that uh, is available, Senso uh, has got a, or rather Senso Homeschool has got a number of uh, workshops in January for both containers as well as serverless. And uh, it's going to be taught by people like myself, uh, Vlad, who's also a AWS Containers Hero, as well as Slobodan and Alexander uh, Simovich as well, who are also uh, serverless heroes. And I guess, uh, Ant, you've got a new course as well on the Node.js yeah. for serverless? Yeah, yeah. So the Node.js for Serverless course is effectively a beta now. So if you buy any of the other courses, you'll get it for free. Um, that's going to be available from mid-September. That's focused at folks who um, who already know how to write code, but they don't know Node.js. Um, as you know, Node.js has the largest ecosystem of plugins and tutorials and everything for serverless. Um, majority of serverless functions out there are written in Node. Um, it doesn't mean you have to write in Node, but if Node is kind of the, the easy path for serverless. Um, so what we've, what I've found is that a lot of people 
want to get into functions, they want to get into using serverless functions, and they find that most of the tutorials out there, most of the tools out there, all on Node.js, so they want to learn Node. And the idea of the course is, is aimed at those folk. Um, it's a journey I went on very painfully um, back in 2015 um, before Node had promises, never mind async await, and tried to figure out how, how on earth callbacks worked. Um, was interesting. So the idea with that that course is to ease that transition into learning Node. Um, it'll be about 10, 11 hours of content um, in total. And yeah, it should be like a short, quick course that you can do um, to get yourself up to speed really quickly with Node.js. So when you go and do your course or do other courses or you know you want to work in production, you, you understand what people are talking about when they start to talk about Node.js specific things and you're, you're equipped to use Node. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the homeschool sort of format, and I think uh, the conversation we have on the Discord, uh, certainly in the last two times we've run the workshop, has been great. There's just so many different topics and questions from people who's uh, yeah. working with serverless and uh, just got specific questions that are outside of the scope, uh, but there's some really good engaging conversations going on in those servers. Uh, and, and hopefully you know, we, we have a good group again in the January so that uh, we can get those uh, conversations going. Um, so you talked about the Node.js and how it's uh, a certain one of the major trends in this uh, server space being the most, by far, the most popular language people use. Are there any other trends that you see in the industry, sort of major movements and adoption patterns? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Um, one of the major ones I'm seeing is, is the adoption by our front-end developers. Uh, that's accelerating. Um, you're seeing, um, so for example, the, the front-end framework uh, Svelte, uh, their new version of Svelte, uh, I think version 4, whatever it is, coming out, I'm not too sure when, but uh, is going to adopt a thing called adapters, uh, which essentially are plugins for your infrastructure, and they're all going to be serverless-based. Um, you know, They're saying Svelte is going to be a serverless-first front-end framework with this next iteration, and that's super interesting because that's one of the up-and-coming frameworks. The other side of it, you've got um, Next.js. Uh, there's multiple plugins um and libraries out there that enable you to run Next.js server-side rendering, um, either in edge functions or within your kind of central Lambda functions. So I think um, that trend is going to just keep accelerating. So I think front-end adoption of um, service platforms is just going to keep accelerating. That's not going to slow down. I think that's one really big one. And the other kind of slightly related to that is definitely going to be the adoption of kind of edge functions. Um, so things like Lambda at Edge, uh, Cloudflare Workers, but do a quick check. I think there are nine different CDN providers who provide edge functions at this point in time. Um, you know, so and various flavors with Node.js or WebAssembly or whatever. But um, the, those two trends, I think, they're both front-end related and they're both related to each other, are going to be kind of big coming coming pretty soon. And they will dramatically change the way you build applications. Um, you know, uh, going forward, and you know, the way you think about your users and how. You, and what latency looks like and these these kind of concerns. Yeah, so I released my um, AppSync uh, Masterclass course on early access, and so far I've seen I'm seeing a lot of uh, front-end developers sign up to the course, uh, which is slightly, I guess, uh, surprising to me, <laughs> given that the most of the people I know are back-end developers. And one of the things I'm also noticing is that um, you have all these, uh, I guess, the uh, frameworks or libraries that are geared towards the front-end developers, like your Amplify, your Netify, and the Vercel, and they try to, I guess, um, hide or at least abstract away a lot of the underlying complexities of AWS. 
Um, do you see, I guess, a, a lot of adoptions of these uh, frameworks, and uh, how do you, you know, see they compare with each other, like Amplify versus uh, Netlify versus uh, Vercel, and some of the other ones you mentioned, which is, I guess, more focused on front-end hosting as opposed to building an entire full-stack application? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, the edge functions would typically be about server-side rendering um, on the edge. Where be a lot, I think you will start to see some edge APIs-type uh, patterns appearing, but we're a little bit away from that. But on your side, in terms of um, these frameworks, you know, frameworks or platforms that essentially abstract away AWS to a large extent, because uh, Netlify Functions is on top of AWS, Vercel is on top of AWS, um, that that I think is going to continue. Um, Amplifier obviously is also on top of Lambda because there's this there's this tension because the AWS Lambda team want to consistently increase the use cases where Lambda can be used. Um, you know they want to all the objections people have, for example, for not using Lambda and I'm not talking about front end use cases like every use case. So folks will say oh, I can't use it for long running workloads or I can't really use it for data science, whatever. AWS will do something to Lambda. They'll release something that removes that objection. The problem with every time they add a feature to remove an objection and to make uh, Lambda usable to a broad audience is they add complexity to Lambda. It's another toggle. It's another button or thing that needs to be changed or monitored or you have to do something to it to use this new feature. So you know, Lambda 2014, 2015 was a very basic service. Now it's can be super complex and it's you know it's a lot of features and buttons that people don't need um that you know so if you are the the web developer um you know you don't need 80 percent of, of what lambda is going to give you so having an abstracted platform like vercel which makes opinionated uh, decisions about what you do and don't need um, that's geared towards your particular use case is great because then you don't need to go into the depth of learning the AWS stack, which can be quite intimidating, particularly if, if you're a front-end dev and all you want to do is get a quick API up quickly, um, you know, you've got a single data source in the back end, uh, that kind of thing. It's, yeah, I think, yeah, Vercel, Netlify, Amplify, um, Apex up even uh, from TJ Hello Road Track. Yeah, there's a bunch of these services and the fact that they just, yeah, they simplify, take away all, all the buttons you don't need to press uh, and make it easy is going to be huge and they're going to keep getting getting bigger yeah so i've seen a lot i guess a lot of people uh, adopt serverless technologies uh, through some of these frameworks um, i guess one question i always have is uh, well you know functions is just one small part of your overall application and uh, at some point you're going to be touching lots of other services especially as your application becomes uh, more uh, I guess a uh, feature rich and that uh, you need more and more capabilities that Amazon is able to offer through you know, EventBridge, through all of these other services. Um, if you start off with something like Netify or Vercel, how do you then escape from that? How do you then graduate from that so that you are able to then use more of the capabilities that AWS offers, but also how do you educate people about uh, these other services that they could use and all the different features that they now realize, oh, maybe you do need them after all. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I actually saw um, someone on Twitter the other day talking about how they were using, um, I can't remember which one of the services, um, but essentially they had a, a concurrency limit imposed on them by, by the service. And they're, they're tweeting about, oh, no, um, Lambda can't go higher than this. And everyone's saying, well, actually, no, it can. Just put a request in. And then this person responded, well, actually, I'm using it via Vercel. Well, 
you know, you'd have to ask for the cell to, to lift, that, lift that for you, um, or you have to move off it. You know, and that's a use case where you would potentially are outgrowing the cell. I think the, the concurrency limit was 50,000 or something like that, which is very high. Most people won't hit that. But for those folks who do and they need to move to their own platform, I think from a code perspective, there's not much to change because it's still running on the underlying platform. Um, may, what will change is your deployment, so how you deploy. Um, and you have to do a little bit more on the infrastructure side. So Vercel stands up a bunch of infrastructure for you that you don't have to do. So then you need to understand things like CloudFormation or CDK or Terraform, whatever infrastructure is code tool. So there, there's definitely a learning curve to move off these things because, you know, Vercel, um, Netlify, Amplify all take away a lot of pain for you. But if you outgrow it, you're going to have to, you can't avoid the, that learning. Um, so yeah, I think the big thing is you'd have to learn how infrastructure as code tools work. You'd have to learn, um, probably around, around, um, I am is the other big one you'd have to learn about. So, um, identity access management to make sure you, uh, use least privilege. Um, and also potentially implementing, uh, your own monitoring solution or at least learning how the AWS, uh, monitoring suite works. So X-ray and CloudWatch, CloudWatch logs in particular. Um, those are the three big areas you'd probably have to look at um, if you wanted to move off one of those platforms. Um, you know, those platforms give you a lot because they save you a lot of pain in those areas. But if you do outgrow it, um, you know, you, you're going to have to invest and do that kind of stuff. I'm saying that if, if you do outgrow it, you'll be at the scale that you, you know, you sh- shouldn't there be able to afford um, to hire someone to do it or to you know take the time to do that yourself. You know, the investment will be justified, should we say? Okay, so on the front end side of things, you've got a lot of uh, framework to choose from as well as you know, all these different uh, tooling like Amplify, Netify, and Vercel. Um, how do you go about you know, deciding which one to, to go with? Like Amplify has got its own magic, and Netify has got its own sort of magic, and uh, I guess Vercel must have its, got its own sort of you know, uh, front end integration as well to make uh, building a certain type of application easier. Um, what are some of the decision points that you will go through when you're looking at? Okay, I'm building the uh, this uh, uh, homeschool platform. I wanted uh, I should no, I should choose uh, I don't know one of them because of what? Yeah, it's an interesting. One. I think it you know choosing a front end framework is um, <laughs> it's not a small task to be honest. It's it's one of those if you have skills React skills for example, you'd want to stick with React. You don't necessarily want to let your back end detect dictate your front-end framework. All of these these providers, uh, Vercel, Netlify, Amplify, et cetera, um, they are opinionated to a certain extent, but they're not, in terms of front-end frameworks, they want to be as interoperable with all the different front-end frameworks as is possible. Um, because if, if uh, so Vercel, for example, are the core maintainers of a framework called Next.js, which is a React-based framework and the most popular React framework. You know, React is a relatively foundational level set of libraries and Next.js is opinionated configuration on top of React. And so Vercel's hosting for Next.js is excellent, um, you know, because, you know, they actually write the framework and they optimize Vercel for Next. But Next.js can be run anywhere. So, for example, Netlify has just released a build plugin for Next.js. So if you're running Next.js, you can use Netlify functions to do server-side rendering in a few clicks using Netlify. Um, as I said, Svelte has kind of gone the other route. They're not waiting for providers to optimize for them. They're going to be building a bunch of build plugins that makes it really easy for you to run your front-end framework on any provider. And they're still doing that, that 
focus. I think they've got a Netlify plugin and they've got one other available at the moment. But um, yeah, I think what what you should look at is definitely it's it's not really the technical aspects for me. It's more the community aspects. You know, how many blog posts are, are out there? How many? If you ask a question on this framework, um, will you get an answer in Stack Overflow or is there an existing answer in Stack Overflow? Um, those things for me are actually bigger than um, you know the, the the technical merits of individual platforms. Um, it's just one of the pain points I've hit with um, with homeschool. Uh, I built it in Svelte. Uh, if you, I don't know React. I know I know Vue uh, to a certain level, and I've done some work with Svelte. I just found Svelte was easier to pick up. But then I hit an issue with a library, a GraphQL library I was using with Svelte, and there was like no resources out there on it at all. You know, it was quite a major pain point for me at the time. I, I was able to, you know, get it up and working, but it was particularly around how to do authenticated queries with this library. And there was nothing. The the docs were awful. Um, well, there was no documentation on how to do authenticated queries. All the documentation were unauthenticated queries. Um, there was no, um, almost nothing in Stack Overflow, no blog posts. It was quite painful, actually. Um, and that's because... It wasn't a super popular library I was using. Um, and it had been written by one person. You know, it got me, and I'd probably spent a bit too much time focusing on it. I'm actually swapping it out um, in the next couple of weeks for something that, that didn't exist 12 months ago but does exist now um, and is significantly better documented because um, there's a commercial company behind the library I'm going to be using. Um, so that that's probably the, the biggest pain point I'd look at is, you know, how much documentation – how much? How many community resources is there on the configuration you're looking at? So, if you want to run Next.js, you know, uh, for example, if I want to run Next.js and Lambda at Edge, are there plugin libraries to help me? Are there, you know, uh, good docs out there? Are there um, good blog posts and people who've done this kind of thing? You know, and that would be probably my biggest piece of advice: is the technical stuff is secondary to the community stuff. That's such a great point. Uh, I've run into so many problems in the past myself as well when I'm using technologies that are new and uh, there's just not a lot of help. You have to do a lot of your own legwork to figure out how do I actually make this thing work the way I want it to. Um, so on the last thing there, you mentioned about uh, Lambda Edge. Uh, so maybe let's switch gear a little bit and talk about Edge functions because uh, you, uh, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the CDNs, uh, networks already support some kind of uh, Edge functions. So... Um, how do you see, I guess, the, that particular market right now? Do you see um, maybe uh, is, is Cloudflare Worker, the clear, I guess, the leader right now? It seems to be a lot more capable, their platform, compared to Lambda Edge. There's still a lot of pain points involved with using Lambda Edge. And uh, Cloudflare Workers has got all these other, I guess, really cool stuff you get as well, like the, uh, the, the I guess, the, what do you call it now, the persistent uh, workers as well as the, uh, the data store. Um, where, now, where do you see that that space is uh, is evolving? Yeah, so I think the space is all very, very early days. Um, like I said, I, I would have hoped Lambda at Edge would have kept up with Cloudflare Workers, but I would agree that Cloudflare Workers is definitely the the leading platform, and it, it, it's it's a leading platform for as much as it, it's more than just workers. You've got the KV store, which is a really basic key value store um, that persists on the edge, and then you've got the the persistent workers, which is um, which kind of gives you state on the edge as well within a worker, which is really interesting. Um, you know, so it's also a super easy model and it supports JavaScript and WASM via, via the V8 engine. Um, 
I've done a little bit of work in it. I'm building some kind of prototypes type stuff at the moment with with it, and it's super easy to use. Um, it's almost too easy. I had an issue where, um, so for example, if if you use KV Store, it's actually a, you have to create bindings outside of the worker. There's no like SDK to load or anything else like that. In your work and co- worker configuration, you you bind your function to a KV Store, and you can just reference that KV Store by name. You don't. Have, there's no initialization steps or anything else like that, and that really confused me because you know, typically if you're running Lambda or anything else, you know, Azure Functions or Google Cloud, you know, you bring in your library, you pass your library the you know connection details um, and all of that. You've got two or three lines of initialization type code. Um, KV Store, there's none of that. You just you know you create this binding outside of the outside of your code. Um, and you just reference <laughs> reference your KV store and do put get and put and get operations on it. Um, so that was super. Like the confusion was was almost too easy. Um, that is a very basic service, but just being able to have storage on the edge um, does open up lots of things for you. Um, I wouldn't ever use it as you know your source of truth, but you know locally cached. Um, uh, storage, you know, with, with stuff uh, with data you're going to be accessing regularly, having that on the edge makes loads of sense um so yeah it's uh i think so they're definitely leading the other interesting one is what fastly are doing so fastly um their edge workers uh, platform is i think it's fastly edge or fastly it's not workers i can't remember the exact name of it but um that uses wasm what's a web assembly um so there's a as much as cloudflare workers can use web assembly um, it uses WebAssembly via V8 engine. So essentially, all they've done at Cloudflare Workers is taken V8 out of out of Chromium, and they're running that on the edge. And V8 supports WebAssembly. What Fastly are doing is they're running their own WebAssembly runtime. Um, there's two WebAssembly runtimes. One's called WasmTime, and the other one's, I think, it's called Lucent. And Fastly developed Lucent, and they've recently taken on the the WasmTime team from Mozilla. So I think those will combine and become one. But they run that WASM runtime on the end edge, and where this makes a difference is the WASM runtime startup time is incredibly fast. Um, so think about like V8, V8 startup time. It's 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 loading a JavaScript and a WASM engine in there, whereas uh, with a WASM only runtime, it just loads the WASM engine. Um, so you're seeing folks getting nanosecond response times on Fastly's Fastly's edge functions. And that looks really, really interesting. Um, look, you know, having a few nanoseconds to run a simple script is fine. Um, it doesn't really matter if, if, for example, you're doing data, fetching data from a central database because, you know, saving a few nanoseconds on what could be a couple 10, 20 millisecond database call isn't going to change much in the end. Um, but that's that's super interesting. I'd like to see where, where that goes. And maybe we'll see more kind of WebAssembly-based um functions platforms there's still maturity issues with WebAssembly, though i think particularly on the community side um you know at the moment if you want to write um have rust that transpiles to WebAssembly, there's quite a bit out there but if you do want to do any other language transpiling to WebAssembly, there's the tool chains aren't quite there the documentation isn't quite there um so that still needs to mature but um yeah what what fastly are doing with with WebAssembly looks Super, super interesting. Um, so those are the two platforms I'd look at really is Cloudflare and Fastly's two two platforms for different reasons. Okay, and for audience who haven't heard about uh, WebAssembly or at least haven't been keeping up to date on the, what it is, and uh, uh, can you just maybe quickly explain what is it and uh, why does it matter? Why should you bother with uh, 
uh, WebAssembly at all? Yeah. So WebAssembly is essentially, it's not the easiest question. It's essentially, you, you get a compiled binary. It's, it's not a binary in that, um, you know, it's not a binary file, but a, a WebAssembly file can run anywhere that you have a, a viable WebAssembly um, runtime. So, you know, a little bit like a scripted language um, that, you know, as long as, you know, it's a Python or JavaScript runtime um, interfaces with the local environment, um, you know, with WebAssembly, the WebAssembly runtime will interface with the local environment. So in a browser, that's V8. On a server, that would be WASM time or Lucent. Um, uh, but the key bit there is you take your um, kind of higher level language, Rust, um, TypeScript, uh, or whatever it is. There's a few WebAssembly transpilers out there now. Um, and it'll transpile down to WebAssembly, which... You know, you can open up a WebAssembly file that looks a little bit like assembly, um, and then you can run that anywhere. You don't need to cross-compile WebAssembly for any other platform. And the big thing about it is significantly more efficient than a typical scripted language. Um, so it's got huge performance benefits over it. Um, and like really interesting ones is TensorFlow.js, for example, the JavaScript implementation of TensorFlow. Um, three months ago, switched out its back end to WebAssembly. So... If you use TensorFlow.js, the, all the bindings, all your API calls will be in JavaScript, but then it handles hands those off to um, to this WebAssembly uh, to the WebAssembly backend, um, and that now can run anywhere, and they don't need to cross compile it. You know, so you don't need to you know compile it for Linux, Linux. You don't need to compile it for Windows. It's the exact same code, um, WebAssembly code that can run anywhere as long as it's got a compatible runtime, which is what's you know pretty powerful about it. Yeah, I remember when it was first announced, uh, someone did a demo that was uh, showing how they can cross-compile the Doom uh, to run on the WebAssembly, and it was smooth. The frame rate was perfect. Um, so I guess the another question I had about what you talked about earlier was about the KV store. Uh, because I remember I spoke with uh, Paul from uh, Stop Forum Span a while back, and he talked about the KV store quite extensively as well because uh, his, whole, his whole API was hosted on the edge. And I remember he said that the KV store was, uh, the data store was still coming from a UAE's one data center, uh, even though it's accessible from all the functions from the edge. Um, so do you know how does that happen? Has, it, has that changed now? Is the data is actually available on the edge? So what it looks like to me is, is, is it essentially it's a KV store cache is, is what it kind of looks like to me. Like, so Cloudflare give you guarantees that your data will be update, up to date within 60 seconds. So if you change... Um, one of your items in the KV store, it'll be globally available within 60 seconds. My, my guess is that there's a central um, data store somewhere, and then essentially uh, the KV store is a cache of that data on the edge. Um, you know, so, so that use case where you're going to have a lot more reads and writes is, a, is the right use case for it. If you've got a very high throughput um, database you know, where you're going to have lots of writes, it's probably not a great great use case, particularly where those rights have to be available to everyone else. So, for example, something like a chat app, um, using KV Store as your state state for chat is probably not a, a great place to go. Then, the other hand, um, the observable, uh, the the clouds, Cloudflare's um, kind of persistent uh, observable workers is probably the better route to go because that's more like a um, in memory type uh, uh, on the edge storage of of your state. So. Yeah, KV store uh, it still looks like it's a central store um, that's essentially replicated or cached on the edge, essentially. 
Okay, got it. And I guess uh, if it's uh, just an edge cache, then it probably also means that uh, it's not great for uh, data that are constantly being overwritten. Uh, so you read it from the edge and then you try to update it and you have different actors from different edge locations all trying to update the same record. Uh, I guess they don't have CRDT support on the KV store or do they? No, 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 they they definitely don't have that today. Like I said, it's it's uh, sixty seconds is is the guarantee they give you on your data being up to date. Which, you know, for um, for data that's going to change a lot, that's highly dynamic. That's not fantastic. Um, but like I said, if you've got a, a product catalog, for example, you put that in your KV store because that's not going to change. Uh, whereas, for example, like the the quantities on a particular product, you make a call back to your central database for that. So, okay, got it. Do you remember there was this company called, uh, I think, Near Cloud? They had this thing called Cohero a few years ago where they had uh, essentially edge functions with a CRDT on the edge so that you are, you know, you can do any updates you want so long it's permitted by the CRDT data structure uh, and that they are guaranteed to be globally eventually consistent because that's the guarantee that you get with CRDT. Any idea what happened to them? And uh, th that idea seemed so powerful but just never seemed to take off. Yeah, I don't know. You see, one of the problems in generally with functions is it's not about how good your functions are themselves. It's about the platform that they exist in. You know, um, like AWS's big strength is you've got whatever 100 plus um, event sources um, around it. So um, I guess it's, you know, it's two things. If you want to get adopted, it's um, you kind of you need to live within a bigger ecosystem because um, those folks in that ecosystem will adopt you first, as opposed to how great their um, how great you know their platforms are, and also with the CRDTs. I'm wondering how Tim Wagner's new company Vendia um, is working because that's supposed to be like a distributed ledger, distributed service computing. I'm wondering if that's using CRDTs. Um, they have mentioned it's more distributed ledger, so I'm guessing it's more blockchain type tech, which isn't that miles apart. Um, yeah, the CRDTs I think are fascinating. I, I'm wondering if the Cloudflare, the new Cloudflare, I think observable workers are using CRDTs. That, that's, because it kind of looks like they are. I'm not 100% sure, but they haven't publicly said they are, but it kind of looks like they are. CRDTs do look fascinating though. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and since we're talking about all the different vendors, uh, let's go back to what you were talking about. Uh, what we gonna, what I was going to ask you about earlier in terms of uh, the sort of the major differences between Lambda Azure Functions and Google Cloud Functions, and uh, where do you see maybe where Azure is doing better, and maybe where Lambda is doing better, for example? Yeah. So yeah, I think so. I've I've used most. Most of the major cloud providers, I've used Google Cloud Functions, I've used Azure Functions, um, and obviously Lambda as well, all within, you know, in paid gigs and production. So my thoughts on a lot of them, it really comes down to the ecosystem with, within which it exists. You know, um, the first ever functions provider was um, INO, the IN functions. Um, Auth0 had a functions platform called WebTask. All of this kind of existed just before Lambda existed, and they don't really exist anymore. Um, because the adoption is often it's driven by the ecosystem. You know, folks who are using AWS adopted Lambda first. Folks didn't go to AWS because of Lambda, definitely not in 2015. And for me, the quality of the different functions platforms um, is as much about the quality of the overall platform. So the amount of event sources. So Google, for example, is not super event driven. Um, they don't have anywhere near as many event sources as AWS or Azure. And that's, that's a major failing, I think. 
So that's it for part one of my conversation with Anne Stanley. Please come back next week as we compare the functions offering by major cloud providers and take a look at the future of serverless and containers as the two technologies continues on their path to convergence. To access the show notes and to see the transcript for this episode, please go to realworldservers.com. And if you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. I'll see you guys next week.